0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the pros and content podcast brought to you by Notch, the content intelligence platform. My name is Anda. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Notch, and I'm hosting our data-driven CMO series, during which I will interview CMOs who are ahead of the curve when it comes to both content and data and how they use both to move their business forward. In these interviews, we're going to reveal really unique perspectives on the importance and intersection of measurement and content, but also a ton of fun personal stories and great career advice from these incredible leaders. I hope you enjoy. Okay, hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the Data-Driven CMO podcast. I'm really excited to be joined here today by Chris, who is the CMO of Box, and will tell us a lot about both B2B marketing and some B2C marketing. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Anna. Thanks for having me. Of course. You're reporting from the Box HQ in San Francisco, is that right?
1: Redwood City. So, you know, it's quite nice to actually be in an office so unusual these days.
0: I know, I know. I was going to say, isn't it funny how we now go into offices to have these Zoom conversations?
1: No, I mean, it, the, the whole thing, I mean, it, we're, you know, continuously trying to figure out and, and learn on this. And we've been so trained to be in back-to-back like video conference meetings. That when you actually do go in the office and then if you sit and your schedule doesn't change and you're like still in back-to-back video meetings, it's like, why are you in the office? And there's so much value of like being face-to-face and carving out time around that. So it's been a good change of pace.
0: That's awesome. Well, tell us a little bit about your team. How big is it? And when you go visit Redwood City, how much of your team is there?
1: It's changed a little bit, obviously, since the, the pandemic. So globally, like we're 120 or something in the US. We were pretty centralized, you know, marketing organization based in the Bay Area here. we probably, I don't know, the US-based employees, right, 80% were in the office. And that's changed a lot as we've basically opened up the Aperture and, and hired in, in, you know, geos all over the US and all, all over the globe. So when I come in, there's, there's a lot less of us, you know, in, in person than we probably had pre-pandemic. But, you know, I probably get 20% of the org in person and, there's a different energy level when you can all be in the same, you know, area and room and, and you know, feed off of each other, which, you know, I think sometimes we're lacking in being a, in a virtual sort of hybrid distributed world only.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I think there's something to a creative brainstorm that can only be really done in person. There's like an energy to it where you want to have people be together in person. So we're, we're really starting to learn now what it means to do the hybrid. So, yeah, I share your your
1: feelings about this. Yeah, well, I mean, we did something yesterday. Like, we just did coffee and donuts, and you know, and basically in the morning, and just like everyone was just talking, right? And I, and I think I think the interesting part where we're we're almost like so transactional in our meetings, you know, it's like okay, this one's done. Let's get to the next one, and you miss that, you know, that small talk and a little bit of the chit chat, and and what we're what we're finding is, you know, a quick conversation in five minutes you know, solved a problem that we would have scheduled for 30 minutes an hour next week. So it just, I don't know, there, there's definitely benefits. There's benefits of being hybrid and then there's benefits to, you know, being in person as well.
0: Yeah, and I think there's something annoying to the to doing this that makes you just want to get things done. And so it's, it feels transactional because you jump on, you're like, I can't wait to get off of this thing. Uh, okay. So yeah, agreed. Well, tell us a little bit about how you started your journey as a marketer. You worked in so many different kind of big... B2B institutions. So I'm curious how you ended
1: up at Box doing what you do. I am definitely, I would say, not a traditional path to CMO, for sure. You know, I sort of started early in my career. I actually went to school and get a, got a marketing undergrad degree, and I, and I started in geosegmentation. In the, in the early days, we were doing a lot of geosegmentation, digital marketing. Uh, work and I was on the, the vendor side and then spent uh, many years in financial services, doing a lot of sort of database marketing, you know, this sort of pre-digital where digital was just starting to come up and uh, started to build some of my chops as a marketer in the digital realm in financial services, which was super fun at the time and, and trying to get uh, very traditional organizations to think in a different way. You know, like email would be a channel that we should probably figure out how to capture. And then I was lucky enough to to be part of a few startups where we were sort of focused on the you know the persona. I was a, a marketer of one in a small startup, which was fun. We got acquired by a company called Website Story for anyone that's in, in digital marketing and web analytics, one of the original uh, HBX, and was lucky enough to run product for that organization. And then we got acquired by a company called Omniture, which uh, sort of expanded out. And anyone who's been in digital marketing, Omniture was you know the de facto leader um, at that point. And I was, again, in different roles, right? And, and I wasn't always a traditional marketer, but I was always sort of engage with marketers, talking about best practices and and a lot around digital marketing at that point. And then we got acquired by Adobe. So I was part of the acquisition that that sort of spurred the Adobe transformation and, and disrupting itself, you know, from a traditional sort of box based solution to, you know, to moving to subscription in the cloud and spent 10 years there in various different roles. And I actually didn't hold a marketing role for almost 10 years at Adobe. But like every day I'd run the customer success organization, the pre-sales organization, and I was talking to marketers all day. After 10 years of being at Adobe Proper, I wanted to try to find something maybe a little bit smaller and take a lot of the learnings that we had had built over the years at Adobe to a new company. And I got introduced to Vox, the founders and, and some of the executive team, and I actually took a role of VP of customer success right? And people are like, whoa, like, how did this whole journey like I, I left running the go to marketing product marketing for the creative cloud enterprise business to like the VP of customer success at box. And it's like, well, that's very unnatural. And it's like, yeah, you know, life sometimes there's detours. And and sometimes you jump for the people and you know, you figure out the career and the and the title and the responsibility later. When our previous CMO had left, I basically raised my hand and said, hey, you know, there, I think I I could do a great job of, you know, I understand the customer, I understand our value proposition, some of the challenges we've got and uh, raised my hand. And that was just over three years ago. So it's been a non-traditional, but sort of fun journey, but it's all kind of been around marketers and the persona. And, you know, it hasn't been a full detour, but yeah, for sure it's different.
0: I think it's so funny that you didn't actually change jobs that many times. You just kept getting acquired by another company. <laughs> right.
1: there, there was a period of time where, you know, we got acquired, I think, three times in five or six years. It was it was wild. I mean, hell, to end up at a company like Adobe through those acquisitions and and be part of the, you know, their sort of historic transformation was pretty cool.
0: Yeah, I just realized, I've always kind of taken taken it for granted that Omniture was Adobe Analytics, but I, I do recognize it was a separate company, but that must have been one of the most successful acquisitions ever, because now Adobe runs on Adobe Analytics. I mean, the whole, and I'm assuming it's so much more than that, but the whole data stack that they've built runs on Omniture.
1: At the time, it was very head-scratching for us. On the Omniture side, we're like, What? Like, what do you mean we're gonna we're gonna get acquired by Adobe? Like they do like Photoshop and and, and PDFs and Flash. Like it doesn't make any sense. But at the time, Chania and the rest of the leadership team had this like brilliant idea of how do you bring together creativity and, and data and the art and science of sort of all of this together under one umbrella and eventually build you know, platforms around that. It was brilliant. And it took us a little while to sort of you know, think through that. But at that point, it was all about changing the world through digital experiences. And you had from content creation to publishing to management to analytics, all of that. You know, as as one company thinking through it, I mean, clearly it was successful. They've had a, you know, they've had a heck of a run, you know, for the last fifteen years as part of that.
0: Hundred percent. So you've had so many different roles, which I'm assuming puts you in this really incredible competitive advantage as a marketer because you not only understand what the pain points are of your colleagues across the organization, but but also you probably can communicate better with them because of that. So when I ask marketers this question you know almost everyone gives me a different answer i'm so curious what you're going to say what what do you think is the hardest thing about explaining marketing to non-marketers
1: what is the value of marketing to the organization because <laughs> everyone has a different opinion how do you measure success of marketing because it is such a broad discipline and there's so many different facets to it that have different measurements it's not like when you're in sales you kind of know the scorecard Right, we're you know we're building pipeline. What's our conversion rate? You know, basically, what are we? How much revenue we're building? Um, in CS, a little you know, depending on your you know your organization, it might be around sort of the onboarding experience. It might be CSAT. It might be churn or conversion rates. Marketing is like well. Is it brand awareness? Is it pipeline generation? Is it PR coverage? Like all of these things, and it's like, well, what, what does success look like? And, and internally, we still, you know, we still, you know, continue to evolve and figure out how do we explain the value, you know, of marketing dollars, um, you know, to the organization. But I, but I think what you know, you mentioned sort of the competitive advantage is. I, I think I have empathy for those different functions across the business, because I've run product, I've run, you know, parts of a sales organization, I've run renewals and, and had quotas and, and in customer success. And like, they're hard, they're hard jobs. And, And so one of the, one of the really nice things is our CRO, our chief revenue officer, and i and our chief customer officer we all kind of get each other because we know you know there's there's no like finger pointing of you didn't do this and you do that which i've seen in other organizations because there's a general empathy yeah, we all understand our jobs are all hard, but we're all in this together is is maybe the best way to put that.
0: I really like that. I'll ask you a trick question, which is, which one do you think is the hardest of all the functions that you've run?
1: In sales, is, sales is like ridiculously hard because you know, the, 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 the scorecard is so visible and it's so clear. You know, they have to think both short-term and long-term and, you know, the short-term is where all the pressure is. There's no other part of the organization at the end of the quarter you know, all eyes are on that individual, you know, thinking through that, at least in, in B2B companies. So I, I think sales is probably the hardest for sure.
0: And one more question, what made you choose marketing? I mean, you, you actively chose to get into the main marketing seat from the customer success seat.
1: Yeah, I think I think there's a couple of things. One, I think the breadth of the footprint of what marketing does is really really intellectually sort of you know curious so you're constantly learning this is a it's an industry that is evolving Uh, data is becoming it it's not even becoming, it is like the de facto of being a data-driven, you know, marketer is so, so critically important. But the context switching of the day is, one, can be sort of exhausting, but also invigorating because you're, you're involved in so many different aspects of the business that I think that's the part that I really enjoy. I think a lot about learning and, you know, continuing to evolve and, and grow. I think marketers, if you're not learning and growing, then you become obsolete
0: probably one of the hardest things about marketing is that it's constantly getting disrupted and the rules are constantly changing. So you have to be a bit of a masochist to want to be
1: in that role as well. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's funny, I was just, you know, meeting with the majority of my leadership team and with this project we're reinventing ourselves as a marketing organization. You know, I've been in, in C for three years and we've had a really nice run of three years. But the thing that I'm realizing is that we have to disrupt ourselves right and so if we don't disrupt ourselves someone else will whether that's the market or customers or you know the rest of the leadership team and so we're we're thinking about what's the next three year plan and how do we disrupt ourselves as part of that
0: i was talking to another cmo as part of this podcast and it's interesting i don't think there, there's right or wrong but you know some some cmos especially ahead of what's happening in the world right now they're saying i'm just going to stick with my playbook. like don't don't try to fix what's not broken and then others have the opposite reaction of you know it's it's a time where we're going to be forced to reinvent so we might as well proactively reinvent so it sounds like you're more in the latter group but tell me how you got there
1: yeah I, I think I think there's a couple of things one the effectiveness of the programs that we're running we're slowly seeing you know quarter over quarter becoming less effective you know if you look at the uncertainty of what's going on in the world and the investment profile we're we're now going into strategic planning and this is the time of year where everyone has all these wishes of things that they'd like to go do and you roll up and it's you know millions upon millions of investment dollars we have to be realistic there's a lot of uncertainty of what's going to happen globally we want to go do some new innovative things maybe we'll get investment maybe we won't you know that's how how we should think through this so in order to carve out capacity and money and time and all that then we've got to reinvent ourselves take a hard look at everything we've been doing for the last few years and say okay the world's changing what worked two years ago may not work anymore let's put that on the table and and have a honest discussion around whether we should you know do something else and that's the sort of permission i'm giving my team right now to question everything we're doing
0: so I don't want to put you on the spot and ask you to share your whole playbook with us but <laughs> but I do. <laughs> I'm curious as you're looking at the things that I've worked over the past 3 years, you know, this this moment in time which is so very interesting for the world and in particular how it trickles down into into software sales. Are there any kind of high-level insights you can share in terms of how you might change your plans? You know, like, for example, are you moving more from paid into organic?
1: I think there's there's a couple of things we're we're trying to figure out. You know, content obviously plays a, a big component of that. And then the thing that I think many of us are struggling with is just engagement with prospects and customers. You know, we're getting back into more and more, you know, traditional field marketing events and, and in-person things, but it's... It's hard. It's hard to get people to commit. It's hard to get people to show up even when they've committed. And so I think this, you know, pre pandemic, you know, you would have pulled together a a nice dinner at a great restaurant and great content and everyone, and it's like, okay, it would have filled up, you know, a few days. Now it's like really hard to get people to, to do that. So all of the tricks and tactics, you know, for the last couple of years, digital worked really well because we were kind of forced you know to do digital events and it was like well no one's traveling no one's going to the office no one's getting out digital works and they would show up now i think over the last six to 12 months digital is becoming difficult it allows you to scale and and reach more people in a cost-effective way but the engagement isn't there and so and now so naturally what everyone's doing is like flipping back to all the in-person stuff and what you're finding is like There are probably some brands that can command and you know and pull in that audience, and then there's a lot that may not. And so, what's that look like in the future? You know, the the big thing we're trying to figure out is how do you drive customer engagement? The combination of box led events versus third party events versus industry events, digital versus in person, and and trying to tweak on those dials to try to figure out what's the what's the best, most cost effective way to go do that. And I don't think. I don't think anyone's figured it out. So we're gonna be constantly sort of iterating and, and tweaking that as we go.
0: It's all about the metaverse, I think.
1: Yeah, we're all, I mean, we're all in, we're just- You're uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, building the box metaverse. <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean, it, 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 that's a whole other content challenge around how do you keep on brand and, and everything else. No, I mean, I, I think, you know, I think it's super early days around that. I can, I can envision as the technology gets better and others that 10 years from now, you know, we kind of joke like, Can you imagine, like, we actually got on a plane to fly for three days. It cost us $5,000 to go to that event when I can have an immersive experience and and do it in my own living room. Like, it could be interesting. Interesting look back for sure.
0: We'll see. We'll have to come back and listen to this podcast again to see if we were right. So I want to go back to the point you made around the most difficult thing about marketing, which is to explain the value and measure its success. Tell me a bit about how you have thought about kind of building your team and collaborating with other teams in terms of just pure measurement, data collection, and ultimately insights in ROI. It's interesting because again,
1: what I was just mentioning around us reimagining ourselves, I think in this uh, in we're in a distributed world and distributed environments for companies has not been a new thing. Like a lot of companies have been in distributed environments for 20 plus years. I think when we're on video and Zoom all day, it's really easy to get into, you know, the word I, I described it, that basically cringe is the S-word, the silos, planning. And you know, whether that's regional or you know, teams doing their own planning or functions doing their own planning, like marketing's plan here and sales got a different plan and they're not aligned and we're not connecting on that. So we're actually forcing one of the things that we're doing is we're creating these cross-functional teams and we're moving to sort of an agile environment around specific topic areas. So for instance content creation we just are kicking off a project with a cross functional team that includes all aspects of different functions within marketing a global perspective and forcing them to figure out what is our content strategy that should map into our global campaign strategy that has all these different. And I think in the in the pandemic it got really easy to just Start pumping out content and campaigns and we need more and more and more and more and because we're all under pressure to sort of reinvent, you know, and, and react to everything. So we're taking a step back, really evaluating what's working, what's not. You know, as marketers, it's really easy to get excited around, hey, we created all of these leads and MQLs, right? And it's like that's great, but if you're optimizing on that, then it actually doesn't turn into into an opportunity in sales that has you know a pipeline around it and it actually turns into revenue. It doesn't matter, right? So we get excited because we've created all this you know demand that doesn't turn into anything, and we've done our job high fiving and the sales team's going, "Well, what have you done for me lately?" You know, marketing is you know you you do all this stuff, but it doesn't help me. So re- reorienting ourselves on what does success look like, and ultimately success for us is revenue and retention. And, you know, that's how we grow, you know, the business is, you know, we improve revenue and we improve retention that leads to our growth rate. So that's how we're we're trying to pivot and have more conversations about that.
0: You make an interesting point, which is I think COVID was this moment of just like do, do, do. It was, is the volume game. And I think there was a fear that a FOMO, I guess, of missing out on getting your message out there, you know, creating content, breaking through the noise. And I think everyone defaulted to volume versus, I don't want to say quality, but, you know, kind of taking a step back and asking like, what's going to work? To be fair, I think the world was a bit of a wild west, west uh, the digital world that is. So I think you see this kind of across a lot of other companies, them taking a step back now and asking, you know, what? what is working and what's going to work and what's the playbook of tomorrow, even content-wise, that's going to work.
1: Yeah, like 100%. And I, and I and I do think it was, you know, it was sort of necessary at the point because all of your tactics that you had, it was like the only way you could reach was whether it was email or digital events or, you know, display or other things. And I think we've over-indexed as an industry around that. And, you know, if you, if my inbox looks like You know, anyone else's inbox, there's now it's just filled with emails from vendors and brands and everything else. And you're just like, oh my gosh, I can't even pay attention to it. So, as marketers at the beginning of the pandemic, we probably felt good. We're like, oh, we're knocking out another newsletter and another email and this campaign and da 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 da. And now we're like, oh my gosh, like it's losing its effectiveness because people are just tuning it all out. And so, okay, then how do we reach them in, in cost-effective ways as well, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a lot of the game for the past kind of two years was was volume and a lot of the game now and going into the next two years is probably going to be efficiency. I think, it's, I think it's efficiency
1: with content that resonates, right, with the audience of what they want. And, and I think because... Again, we were in a very distributed environment. We were just trying to get more and more out. I mean, we tried all sorts of things, you know, new campaigns, new webinar formats, new, you know, like broadcast and like all kinds of things. Even if it did or didn't work, we just kind of kept it going because we felt like that was the opportunity to go do that. I think efficiency will be necessary as we go into, you know, next year. So I think quality of content and messaging and targeting the right content to the right audience at the right time. Like we've been saying this in marketing for a long time, but we've often gotten away with not doing it. I think this is, you know, as scarcity, you know, happens going into next year, it's gonna it's gonna require us to get better at, at getting the right content to the right people.
0: As you were talking, I I was thinking to myself that maybe the word is getting more precise. You know, like there was a lot of volume and kind of throwing a lot of things at the wall, and now you have the data to get more precise, which will be interesting. Is that function of that's informing you guys what's working, what's not? Does that sit within your team? Does it sit adjacent to your team? How integrated are they?
1: Yeah, it's a a really good point. And and, uh, I've worked in organizations where it's like part of the org versus uh, shared services. For us, it's a shared services organization. And so we have a team that's assigned to marketing specifically that are our business partners that sit on my staff meeting that are part of our you know they're they're basically an extension of the marketing organization, but they sit centrally, and we do that very intentionally so that they can often be the analytical glue, right, between the organizations when they're thinking about sales and how they're measuring effectiveness and all of that. Anything they kind of learn, they can bring to us or CS or product, like you know. So they're they're sort of the centralized point, but there's dedication, right, to the marketing organization because they need to understand the business context. Right. That's one of the challenges is if you have a centralized organization, they're really good at creating reports and everything else. But if they're not in the conversations and understand the business problems and customer problems and all that, then they become a heck of a lot less effective because they've knocked out analysis and you're like, thanks, that's great. But we're never actually going to use that. So I appreciate that. And we don't run into that at all because they're part of the team and they understand it and they, they know our challenges and our objectives and everything else.
0: That's super cool. I I have to tell you, I've seen the really kind of divorced perspective of some of the kind of BI data teams that sit separate, even sometimes sit within marketing. They're still just not in a business mindset. And so it's really interesting that you're making an active effort to pull them across, you know, whatever kind of gap there is into these meetings so that they understand the strategy.
1: Yeah. And we have a, we have an amazing leader who has both an analytical and strategic bent to, to him. And he tends to ends up hiring people that, you know, are analytically driven, they're technical, they get that, but they can get the business context around that. And I think that's often what's missing, whether it's within marketing or another organization, they don't really understand the drivers of the business and everything else. And then they, you try to tell them Hey, I'm trying to understand this and, and they go off and they do a bunch of work and they come back with something and you're like, you totally didn't even understand what I was telling you. Then it then the cycle goes and it's just very inefficient. And so I think for any analytics function, whether they have a separate, you know, business analyst versus you know programmers or others, they really need to understand, you know, what are the what are the problems we're trying to solve from a business lens, not just a sort of analytical lens.
0: Do you think Culture comes from the top when it comes to to this. I mean, you made the point that you have a leader who understands, and therefore he hires people who are like him, right? I think it does. Like you
1: have to set the precedent as you think through, and you you have to set the bar. You know, he sets the bar himself, right? Where you know he'll sit down and, and he'll say to me, "Hey, we're doing we just." kicked off this analysis I had this hunch about something that you talked about the other day in a meeting and my team's doing some work on it. I'm going to present it to you you know next week and half the time I'm like oh my gosh like that's amazing like we didn't how do did we not know this and he's like I don't know we just I had a hypothesis based on a conversation that we were scratching our heads and so I just kicked off a little thing so I think that's that that's the piece of you know, leading from the top, setting that expectation that we are basically business owners, partners with the organization is critically important.
0: The other thing that's really cool about what you just shared, this anecdote is the proactiveness. I think a lot of data functions are very reactive and a lot of marketing teams are in the mindset of, you know, measuring things post a campaign is over, after a campaign is over, or proving that something worked versus optimizing something on the fly to, to have someone who's kind of proactively thinking, okay, I have an assumption, let me go test it and come up with an insight that they may not even be thinking about. That's really cool. That's really, really yeah, cool. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, one of the things that we've done and i learned a lot, you know, for
1: many years at Adobe is, is this notion of like test and learn. The old test and learn strategy, we talk a lot about failing fast, So I I want to encourage my teams to go in and try new things. And I probably said this two or three times just today. We're like, Hey, we're going to try this. And I said, great, try it. But if it doesn't work, fail fast, like don't keep it going. And you know, And I think if you sort of create that environment that is a safe environment where they can test things and there's there's no repercussions if stuff doesn't work, then I just think you get better outcomes because teams can be more creative, they can continue to optimize and optimize. And that is a cultural component where you it's okay to fail, but do it fast. <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly. I love that. And I also like it because it creates a pretty binary moment that happens relatively on a, sh- on a short-term basis, right? Like even the notion of failing fast means you have to measure it and you have to know what failure means and you have to know what good looks like as well. Just staying with the point rank kind of culture, I'm curious, what's your decision making culture? Like, especially when it comes to looking at data and insights and, you know, what, what happens then? Is it top down? Is it decision by committee? How does the data play into it? Oh, that's a very loaded
1: question. Um... I know. <laughs> It probably depends on the, the, the gravity of the decision. I mean, a lot of that for me, I definitely try to push down decision-making into the organization for sure. Right. Where I don't want to be the bottleneck or other leaders in an organization to be the bottleneck that, Hey, help us make the decision. You know, we hire really smart people and they have to have accountability for things and, and let them go. There will be times where, you know, the team will be run, let's say we have an experiment running and the data doesn't show that it's that it's progressing very well. And they say, well, this isn't stat-sig yet and we're gonna run it a little bit longer. And I'm like, okay, I can tell you probably from the early data, like you should probably stop doing it, but it's your call, right? If you wanna run it a bit longer, like it's your call, work through that. And, you know, I'm empowering them, you know, basically to, you know, to, to work through that decision. There are other times where we're doing something and I'm like, okay, this has bigger implications. Or why, like, team, we got to stop. Sorry, um, we got to move. Um, but I try not to do that, you know, that often, unless it's, you know, there's a level of sort of severity that I'm like, yeah, I probably should make this call, you know, faster than probably the team would on their own.
0: That makes sense. Moving on to the notion of customer journeys a bit, you you guys have a bunch of different motions, go-to-market motions. I'm curious how you think about the the customer journey for each how you've maybe thought about creating the organization of marketing and the different teams and functions to support the different customer journeys you have.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's funny. I, I, I keep joking with my team is marketers like to talk about pipeline and you know, I, I like to talk about journeys and maybe it's just part of my experience because pipeline assumes that it stops at sale and marketing should have the responsibility to really facilitate and help facilitate that journey across their their entire experience with with the brand and we we have a very complex go to market motion you know we have everything from a freemium you know offering and you know, millions upon millions of people using Box, you know, every day for free, up to an e-commerce, so a transactional uh, business that sits within the marketing organization, up to a sales motion from SMB to mid-market to pure enterprise. So, you know, everything from like free to three-person architecture firm to you know some of the largest you know companies on the planet using Box, and so we have to think about their very, very different journeys. And, you know, we have 100,000 plus customers, so we have an existing customer journey versus a prospect journey. Are they there to transact on the website or are we trying to get them an opportunity to pass off to someone in the sales organization, right, to go, you know, go nurture that piece? So we're constantly evolving this and, and making sure that we're helping Along that journey, marketing has a role to play across the journey. So everywhere from awareness into consideration, into the buying, into sort of the onboarding and adoption and then renewal component of it. So we have different parts of, orga- of the organization that are kind of focused on this. So one example with our e-commerce team. So again, these are customers that are using a credit card and transacting with us. We have someone in the freemium motion. So how do we get more freemium, freemium customers? And then how do we convert them into paying customers? We have someone working through acquisition. So you know, he's constantly thinking, okay, what's, what's the free trial experience? What's the pricing page? You know, How do we get more people into, you know, into the acquisition piece? And then we have someone thinking about the cross-sell motion, right? 110,000 customers, there's a lot of people to cross-sell, whether that's additional seats or plans or whatever. Um, And then someone who's thinking about retention, what's the offer, you know, at renewal time, are they at risk? How do we use data to predict the likelihood that they're going to churn? And then how do we create offers around that? How do we, you know, non-payment cancellation is like a huge, huge problem for us where their credit card change or expired or whatever. How do we make sure that, you know, we don't lose the customer because they don't have the right credit card with us all that. So again, you're thinking through that entirety of the life cycle you know, we've got different people focused on that. They have to work together. And I've got one, one leader that's thinking through, okay, how do we optimize every part of that journey to make sure that customers are successful You know, with us? So that's just one, but that's just one of the journeys. That's an e-commerce customer. And then when you get into, you know, an SMB customer it's gonna be different because they might actually buy online or you know, they're spending a lot of time on the website trying to understand versus a large enterprise customer that might come to the website. You know, but in reality, they're going to get the majority of their information and content from, you know, from a human. Like I said, we do a lot of like trying to figure out and mapping that all out. And how, how do we what role do we play? And do we have people thinking through each parts of that journey?
0: Sounds like your website is is a massive component to your sales cycles.
1: Yeah, one hundred percent. And you know, it, it it drives a tremendous amount. Obviously, of the freemium in the in the e-commerce and our SMB business, because we're a very healthy SMB business. Uh, for enterprise, a little bit less. But but again, existing customers you know, are coming, you know, how, you know, they're trying to figure out, you know, we've got a, a community platform where we're pushing people in and they're trying to understand how do I get more value out of, out of Box? How do I configure this? Who can I, you know, connect with? So yeah, we think a lot about the website as almost like a, a front door into how they do business with Box. And so there's a lot of optimization and trying to figure out how do we drive more engagement there.
0: It's really cool. It's very thoughtful the way you've positioned it, and it sounds like you do have people responsible for really thinking about the journey holistically. And and you know, as you're talking, I'm also hearing your customer success hat on because as you're thinking about everything that happens after the initial sale. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think
1: I think the important part, especially in like a SaaS business, right, subscription SaaS business. I was telling someone earlier today that retaining a customer is probably almost as almost better than getting a new customer in many cases because they've already used it and you don't have to spend the resources to get them on board and everything else. And I spend a lot of time thinking through what's that onboarding experience. That's not traditionally a marketing role, but I partner with our customer success organization, with our product organization, right? How do we do this at scale? How do we do this when we have consulting involved and other things, but then also, you know, if our customers are going to stay with us and they're going to buy more from us, well, they need to, they need to be successful in using the stuff that they've got. And marketing has all the tools to engage customers, to provide that awareness, to show best practices. We've got, you know, videos and studios and everything else. Like why, why aren't we involved in those aspects? Because I've seen it, I was on, you know, the CS side of the house where, you know, customer success people aren't, aren't marketers. And, you know, there's an opportunity for the marketing organizations to step up and really help, you know, their their counterparts drive, you know, adoption and, and ultimately retention of these, of these customers.
0: There's also, I think, an insight around the, the next kind of year or two around the idea that it's probably easier to upsell your current customers than try to go get a new one, just because people will get very... I don't know. Go into defense mode more than offense mode. So I think your background is going to play an even bigger role as you kind of jump into the creating this new playbook.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I, I mean, full. I totally agree with you. you know, I think COVID, in the beginning of COVID, right? A lot of the companies that sort of survived and thrived. There, there were a handful that like. Like Zooms of the world where it was just deployments and teams and everything else, like, oh my gosh, we didn't have these tools, we need them immediately. But there were a lot of companies that sort of survived and thrived in that environment where they, they did have a big customer base because they the way they could engage in a digital way that they could, you know, they they could cross-sell and upsell them. I think that becomes I think retention becomes critically important over the next one or two years. And if customers aren't getting value out of your products or services. And it's a nice to have and it's not critically part of their you know their day-to-day workflow and others those are the ones that are going to look at and say do we need this you know can we do this some other way in a more cost-effective way a more a less complex way and so those are some of the things that i think over the next couple of years you know retention of the customer base is going to be critically important that then allows you to cross sell and upsell um, as part of that so they sort of go in
0: Final set of questions for you. I'm curious about your your thoughts as a marketer as you look at the next couple of years. And we've talked a bit about how the playbooks are going to change and the priorities and so on. What's exciting and what's scary about what's ahead?
1: <laughs> I think you know we kind of joked about this notion of like the metaverse, you know. And I don't, I'm not I'm not suggesting that we're all going to move into the, into the metaverse anytime soon. But but I do think how we drive engagement in a combination of digital and in-person is going to evolve. And I think tools and experiences are just going to have to evolve over the next few years. Because I think as marketers, we've gotten really comfortable with the ability to scale and broadcast to a much, much wider audience and reach than at least traditionally in B2B, you know, B2B typically doesn't do broadcast and TV and others where you get a broad reach for us, like scaling these events and content in a much bigger way it is exciting. So I think how you create sort of engaging content, immersive experiences and allow your customers and prospects to choose how they want to engage with you, I think is going to be both an exciting challenge, but it's it's going to be hard, I think, over the next couple of years to figure that out. So it, that's the part that probably customer engagement across these different avenues is really, really going to be interesting.
0: I really like this insight that you said, you know, ultimately giving the customer the choice. Like maybe, maybe that is how it's going to have to be. We just kind of have to... Give, give them the in-person, give them the di- digital, give them the metaverse, and and see where they're going to go. Yeah, I mean, I, I
1: think they're they're much more empowered than they, are, they were before. And I think, you know, even as buyers in a B2B or even B2C world, consumers are, are more informed than ever before, right? And, and the data would suggest that even when they start to engage with you in a sales cycle, they've already done a ton of the homework and research and everything else that you know the information is sort of ubiquitous out there and so this notion of like we can control the content or whatever it is like we don't have that control anymore so what you ultimately have to do is create a great experience and great content that they want to be engaging with you and then some want to do it in person some want to do it hybrid some want to only do it digital and we have to sort of support the medium that they want you know in the, in the future
0: It's a humble attitude. It's almost like you have to earn your right to engage with your customers, which I think makes sense given all the noise that we've created during COVID with the volume. Yeah, for (laughs) sure. Well, Chris, this was such a good conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you and I appreciate the... Fact that I was throwing all these new questions at you, and you were just effortlessly jumping into them. So thank
1: you. Well, I mean, this is like I think top of mind for any marketer right now, as you know, especially as we get to the end of the year and start thinking about the next couple of years. We're all trying to figure this out together, and you know, I don't think I'm alone.
0: Hundred percent, but you shared some great insights. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks for listening to Data Driven CMO. Take a moment to subscribe so you can drop in on future conversations with CMOs who are ahead of the curve in content and data, using both to move their businesses forward. Learn more how the right data can reveal your organization's true audience journey at Notch.com. That's K-N-O-T-C-H dot And thanks for listening.